Hello and welcome to the Star Wars Saga Cast. My name is John Wilson and this is episode 3 of the show where I'm going to continue my look at the Marvel Star Wars comic book series adapting the first Star Wars film. This issue hit in early May. It was a requirement from the Star Wars people that Marvel get at least two issues out of the comic before the movie hit to help build awareness and to build the fan base. And they just barely squeaked that in with this issue. On the cover, we see a highly <laughs> dramatized scene of the most Eisley Cantina. It's like a huge barroom brawl with lots of different aliens. Luke Skywalker has a blaster in his hand, despite the no blasters, no blasters line from the film. And Obi-Wan Kenobi looks like he's about to hack all sorts of people to pieces with that lightsaber. There's a caption that says, Luke Skywalker strikes back. And Luke is shouting, swing that lightsaber, Ben, or we're finished. Sounds like some sort of like, um, I don't know, like some sort of like Western dancing song or something. Swing that, da 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 That's not Western dancing. That's more like a, a swing jive kind of thing. I don't know. Anyways, yeah. A little bit strange. Definitely playing into comic booky drama as far as the uh, way that they're changing the scene to, to flare up the cover. We do pick up the story with this issue right after the Tusken Raiders have knocked out Luke Skywalker. This issue is entitled Six Against the Galaxy. I'm going to guess that the six are Luke, Obi-Wan, C-3PO and R2-D2, and I'm betting that we're going to meet Han Solo and Chewbacca in this issue, since, you know, they're in the whole cantina scene and that's what's on the cover. This issue was written by Roy Thomas, illustrated by Howard Chaikin, embellished and colored by Steve Lealoha, and lettered by Tom Orzachowski. Now, Steve Lealoha does something very, very different to last issues at uh, Inker, and it turns the art around in a really drastic way in this issue. So I guess a lot of the problems I have with last issue's art are actually due to the Inker and not to Howard Chaikin. The Tusken Raiders are frightened away by the sound of the howl echoing through the canyon, which turns out to just be Obi-Wan Kenobi. He wakes up Luke. They talk about how he never owned a droid. They go and find C-3PO and put them all back together. And then we change scene to Obi-Wan's shed. Now, very quickly, we go through him discovering the hologram from Leia. We get Leia's father's name, Bale Antilles, Viceroy of Alderaan. I don't think we got that in the book, and I know we don't get it in the novel, so that's a little bit of background information we didn't have before. Now, it's interesting that her father's name is Bale Antilles, whenever she is Leia Organa. Why wouldn't it be Bale O Organa? <gasps> oh, I know, because C-3PO says that their last master's name was Captain Antilles, and I think possibly Roy Thomas was trying to put two and two together to put names together and possibly thought that Bale, who was Leia's father, was also Captain Antilles. So maybe that wasn't explicitly said in the script. So that might be an error on Roy Thomas's part. Anyways, Obi-Wan talks to Luke about how he fought in the Clone Wars, tells him that his father was a Jedi Knight, gives Luke his father's lightsaber. And whenever they're talking, his descriptions of the Force are much more similar to what they saw in the movie than what we saw in the book. So that reinforces my notion that possibly the script revision had changed between the one that Foster got versus the one that Roy Thomas got. 
Meanwhile, aboard the Empire battle station known as Death Star, Darth Vader introduces the torture droid to Princess Leia. However, rather than being a floating black ball with a hypodermic needle on it, it is actually a humanoid-shaped droid, a model I've never seen before. And as the cell door slides electronically shut, the fearful screams of Princess Leia are scarcely heard in the corridor outside. That is some scary stuff there. Not only is she screaming from the torture, but the door blocks it all off so that nobody can even hear her pain on the outside. That's some dark stuff right there. And I really, I said this before, I really wish that this element had been brought out more in the various elements of the trilogy. We're going to see it in Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and I really don't know when else it's ever get brought up. Maybe there are lots and lots of comics out there, but I just haven't read very much of those yet. While on Tatooine, Ben and Luke get back in their land speeder. They see the Jawa sand crawlers and all the dead Jawas. And Luke realizes that he needs to go home and see his aunt and uncle. He races along, and we don't even see their dead bodies in this. We have a description. He sees two smoldering piles which had once been human beings, but no art on it. Which goes along with my idea in the novel of how that's a very... The presentation of that scene is very muted. It's very subtle. It's done in a way that's not sensationalistic at all in the way that they died, which I think is good. I think it helps the storytelling for that particular beat. Back on the Death Star, Tarkin and Darth Vader realize that torturing Leia is just not going to be enough. We need to kill some people to really make her talk. So they're going to set their course for Alderaan now that the Death Star is fully operational. And on Tatooine, we have one of the strangest panels of Luke Skywalker I have ever seen. Whenever he's telling Ben that he wants to go to Alderaan, there's nothing for him now, he wants to study the ways of the Force, become a Jedi like his father. I guess Steve was going for like a windblown look, but just the way he's drawn Luke's face, he totally looks like a woman, maybe even like Jodie Foster, like a young Jodie Foster. It's, it's really, really strange. But we quickly move right on into Mos Eisley Spaceport. We have the these aren't the droids you're looking for scene, and we go right into the cantina. Most of the good fighter pilots frequent here, but watch your step. This place can be a little rough. And within moments, young Luke finds out what he meant because he's standing at the bar getting accosted by aliens. Nagola Dawagi Wooldugger? He doesn't like you. I'm sorry. I don't like you either. Katura Vestat Shadrach! I'm afraid I still don't. Don't insult us! We have the death sentence on 12 systems. Mandish Makora. I love all the, the, the alien talk here. Now, I, I, I've had a long-standing suspicion that the guy who's roughing up Luke Skywalker was really just, like, trying to find out where the bathroom was or asking him what he's drinking or something. He's just trying to ask a question, but he's had one too many, so he's a little bit over-aggressive. And his friend is, is, is punking him, right? And so he's like, you know, we're wanted men. We have the death sentence, death sentence on 12 systems. And before you know it, his buddy has lost an arm and they can't go back to their work at the mine. And Walrus faces kids and wife go starving that day, all because the stupid pig nose guy tried too hard to make the wrong joke. That that's my backstory for this scene. Although, perhaps when we get to Tales from the Most Isolated Cantina, we'll find out that it was something else. The barroom brawl that we saw on the cover lasts for all of one panel as he slices the one guy. Although in this comic, it's not the walrus guy losing an arm, but it looks like uh, the pig nose guy is actually losing his belly on this. Pretty vicious. Now, 
Chewbacca appears on the next page, and although a lot of the times in the comics he is drawn like a big burly gorilla type, this particular artist's rendition does show him much closer to the films, as tall, not as lanky. His his shoulders and build are a bit more filled out, but just, you know, a tall, normal type body structure. Not the overly musculature or overly broad-shouldered type that we see late, that we're going to see later in the comics. Personally, I prefer the renditions of Chewbacca that are closer to the films. It doesn't have to be quite as skinny as he is in the films, but you know, Chewbacca's not a big muscular dude. He's he's a thin, tall dude, and maybe that's why he's driving a ship and not out there wrestling with the other Wookies. I don't know. Our first shot of Han Solo, though, is a really not-too-flattering angle. We're sort of on the camera up, looking down at him as he's lounging in a chair. So just the way the shadows and everything are falling, looks like he has quite the paunch. And his his half-open shirt, instead of looking cool and sexy, just kind of looks like slovenly as he's just kicking back there with his belly sticking out and his shirt hanging open. Not exactly the most uh, most inviting uh, picture, but it's, it's it's just one panel. He looks good the rest of the time. Han Solo does make the brag that his ke- uh, his ship is the one that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. So either Alan Dean Foster's version of the script was different, or he changed it because he knew that parsecs are not a measurement of time, but are actually a measurement of distance. Now, I've heard that later on, George Lucas came up with some BS explanation of why his measurement would have been in parsecs rather than in hours or something. I have no idea what that is. Um, but it just doesn't make sense the way it is right now. So, you know, you call a spade a spade. That's when the stormtroopers show up and Luke and Ben Kenobi make themselves scarce. In the novel, the entire booth was empty, but in the comic, Han Solo and Chewbacca are left behind, looking just, you know, normal, not looking for any trouble, hanging out. Greedo shows up, Han blasts him in the belly, pays the bartender, apologizes for the mess, and then after Ben and Luke sell the land speeder and start getting followed by a little, uh, you know, secret person, we get this scene in Docking Bay 94 between Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt. Now, Jabba the Hutt, the visuals for this character were not created during the making of Star Wars. George Lucas filmed a scene with a big fat man standing in. I have no idea what his plans were for how to bring that scene to life, but whatever they were, it didn't happen. I'm pretty sure he wanted some sort of alien, but he didn't know how to make that come into effect without, you know, because all he had at the time were practical effects. There was no such thing as CGI at the time. So in the comics, whenever it's time for Roy Thomas to adapt this scene, he has no idea that the scene's going to get cut out of the film altogether, but he has no visual for Jabba the Hutt. So he and Howard Chaykin have to come up with their own. And what they come up with is an alien dude. He's yellow-skinned. He has... um, Well, no hair on the top of his head, but really, really long hair coming out of, like, just the sides of his jowls. So, really low down on the cheeks, there are these two huge tufts of hair that come down probably a good six inches off of his face. The front of his face looks a bit like a dog's, although the the nose, instead of being long, is just kind of like, you know, on his face. It's just the the shape of his nose and mouth are very much like the end of a dog's muzzle. Um, he looks like he could be mean, but he also just looks like some random weird alien. Boba Fett is, of course, not in this scene, despite his addition to the special edition. 
And we're actually going to see Jabba the Hutt again in this comic series before he shows up in Return of the Jedi. So this creation that Roy Thomas and or Howard Jakin and or Steve Lealoha came up with, this is the way Jabba the Hutt's going to look until Return of the Jedi actually comes out. Luke and Ben and the droids show up at the Millennium Falcon. They get on board. Stormtroopers show up and shoot them out of the the spaceport. Millennium Falcon has to take off. They're getting chased by Star Destroyers. We got three of these Star Destroyers in space barreling after the Millennium Falcon. I think the idea that these things could move fast like fighters was not um, something that that George Lucas had in mind. But the artists think it's really, really cool. Let's get these big triangle ships after the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. And I love how they leave like rocket trails behind them, kind of like the, the Starship Enterprise did during the Gold Key comic book series. And the Millennium Falcon making the jump to hyperspace is our unlikely site for a cliffhanger. Everything sort of seems to be uh, rocking around unstably in the hold section. And C-3PO shouts, Was this trip really necessary? I forgot how much I hate space travel. Next issue, out of hyperspace and into the Death Star. I think I remember reading Roy Thomas saying that he told Howard Chake when he was plotting out the art to just roughly, you know, every one-sixth of the script find a dramatic point to take us out on. So as far as where they put the cliffhangers, it doesn't always seem like a very good place, but they're just trying to get art on the page to tell the story. So that is our second issue, and we have four more for the Star Wars adaptation, but before we go on... Next episode, I have something different in mind, because this is when Star Wars hit. End of May is where we've reached in our journey through the Star Wars saga, and this is where the movie actually premiered. It was a blockbuster. You had lines going around the building multiple times and down the street for blocks. Lots and lots of people saw this film. A huge, huge event. And of course, it's the core of the entire reason for this podcast even exists. And next episode... I'm going to be pulling up the theatrical release, the THX prettied up theatrical release of the film and doing a commentary on the show with my daughter, Lily. So she has podcasted with me before. She knows the ropes and we're going to sit down and watch Star Wars together and see what happens. So that's next time on the Star Wars saga cast. So we're not going to have any preamble. When the show starts, that's going to be the start of the commentary. And I have, I'm going to have the soundtrack of the film playing quietly behind our voices. So even if you're not watching the film at the time that we're talking about it, you'll be able to hear the little bits as we go along. So you'll know where we are in the movie and everything. If you know your Star Wars well, that is. So that is next episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to send emails, I'll read emails on the air and special email episodes. You can send those to the Star Wars Saga Cast at gmail.com. If you just happen across this episode somewhere randomly, more episodes will be found at the Star Wars Saga Cast.com or on iTunes under the Star Wars Saga Cast. So thank you very much for listening, and until next time, my name is John Wilson. Thank you very much for listening to the Star Wars Saga Cast. And good night.